I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Ephesians chapter 4. We've been uh, teaching for the last several weeks a series that we've entitled Overcoming Offenses. We started off in uh, in Matthew, I'm sorry, in uh, Mark chapter 11, those great scriptures where Jesus explained the operation of faith, verse, verses 23 and 24 of Mark chapter 11, where he talks about faith as believing in the heart and saying with the mouth. And then also he speaks about the prayer of faith that believes it receives when it prays. But then we talked about, uh, we also saw in verse 25 that Jesus said, and when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anybody, that your heavenly Father might forgive you also your trespasses. Jesus was faithful not only in showing us how faith works, how the operation of faith takes place, but he was also faithful to show us what the greatest hindrance to faith, and that is unforgiveness. So in, uh, we see that things have changed a little bit. In the old covenant, it was God will forgive you in the measure or the manner in which you forgive other people, but it's different than that now. In Ephesians chapter 4, we'll start verse in verse uh, uh, 20. Well, let's start in verse 31. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another. Isn't it interesting that God would have to tell Christians to be kind to each other? You would think that would be a given, but not necessarily so. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another even as. And notice that phrase, forgiving one another even as. In other words, here's the example of forgiveness that we're supposed to operating in, operate in. Forgiving one another even as. God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Now, we've talked about some different aspects of uh, forgiveness. We've uh, looked at what real forgiveness is. We've talked about the difference in forgiveness and uh, reconciliation and restoration. It would be great that every time that forgiveness is extended, reconciliation is made or restoration comes about, but that's not always the case. Sometimes that's not possible. Forgiveness is what is required of us, not reconciliation. Reconciliation is a two-way street. You can't reconcile with somebody that that won't reconcile with you. The Bible says that we've been reconciled to God through the work of Jesus, but it tells us to be reconciled to him. In other words, it's not just what God did for us through Jesus that makes the difference. It's our actions back toward him in receiving that sacrifice that Jesus made that brings us into a relationship with God. So reconciliation can't always be made. There are some cases, for example, that people have things against their parents who have now gone on to be with the Lord or or passed away. How can you reconcile with somebody that's already gone? There are times where reconciliation is not possible. It's certainly the goal. It's certainly what we should aim for, but it's not always possible. Today I want to talk to you about something else as a part of the forgiveness of God that, um, um, well, I hope it's a blessing to you. It's, uh, it seems to me is, is a little bit misunderstood, and that is forgiving and forgetting. It's one thing to forgive. It's another thing to forget. But what does the Bible say about forgiving and forgetting? Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 8. We'll look at two... Uh, Passages of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 8. And then we'll also look at chapter 10. Paul is uh, most probably the writer of the book of Hebrews. I certainly believe that he was. And there's a lot of evidence that uh, would indicate that. And, uh, and, and the writer of the book of Hebrews, whoever he is, I believe it's Paul. Um, the same person that wrote the book of Ephesians is most probably the one that, that authored the book written to the Jews, the Hebrews. And in it, the, the Holy Spirit inspires him to refer two times to a prophecy of Isaiah, of, uh, oh, what's that guy's name? Jeremiah. That's his name. A prophecy of Jeremiah in chapter 31. 
And here's what he says, and uh, we'll start in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. So God forgets your sins. Turn with me over to chapter 10. Verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Okay, so we could say then if we're supposed to forgive others as God has forgiven us, we're supposed to not remember anybody's sins or iniquities or the things they've done against us. That would make sense, right? However, we've got a little problem here because we know that Paul, who wrote to the Ephesians, that we're uh, to the Ephesians and also to us by the Holy Spirit, that we're supposed to forgive one another even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. That would mean to remember sins and iniquities and transgressions, things people have done wrong to us. Don't remember that any longer. We also know that Paul, and we'll look at this later on in the service, we also know that Paul told us in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he gave us the scriptures about the love of God, about how the love of God always thinks the best of people, doesn't take into account any suffered wrongs and so forth. Well, that would mean then that we don't remember things that are done wrong to us, right? But then Paul... This same person writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14. He said, Alexander the coppersmith has done me much wrong or much harm. The Lord reward him according to his works. He said in the first letter to Timothy, speaking of people that had done him wrong and caused him problems in his ministry, he talked about those that had blasphemed. He said, of which are Alexander and Hymenaeus, whom I've turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that they might learn not to blaspheme any longer. Now, the fact that he speaks of it again in Second Timothy and says that uh, Alexander the coppersmith has done me much wrong, the Lord reward him according to his works, tells me that God doesn't always kill people as fast as we want him to. What else could that mean? So here's the problem. We have to accept, or at least I choose to accept, that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write everything that he wrote. Otherwise, we're left to pick and choose what's God, what's Paul, and and, and then we're hopelessly confused because there's no way to know. But the Bible claims to be inspired by the Holy Ghost, and I believe that it is. So that means the same Scripture that says that God forgives our sins and remembers them no more is the same scripture that tells us, the same word of God that tells us we're supposed to forgive others even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us, which means we shouldn't remember them anymore. But then we see Paul, the example, the one that Holy Spirit used to tell us these things, saying, I remember what people have done to me. How do these things reconcile? And folks, i got to tell you, a lot of the stuff that people come up with, this Christian um, religious idea of love, the love of God, that it's just supposed to be this sing-song, you know, soundtrack in the background type thing that's just um, syrupy sweet. That's not what I see happening. We see Jesus operating under the love of God and everything that he did, but he called things the way they were. He spoke directly into the face and, and, and confronted people in situations, particularly the religious leaders, He called them hypocrites. He called them snakes. He called them whited sepulchers. 
He called them things that were the, the most uh, vile and offensive things to them according to the law of Moses. How can he do that in love? How can he be operating the love of God and do these things? Because so many times people in, in church circles, and it's never the person that's involved, but it's always somebody else giving you advice on how you ought to live. And they say, well, you need to forget that. You need to just forget all those things that have done, been done to you. You've got people that have been molested. You've got people that have been raped. You've got situations of incest. And you've got other Christians, well-meaning they, that they may be, you've got other Christians that are telling them they need to forget these things. Well, should they? Really? I've seen people struggle with this. I've seen people come and say, Pastor Mike, I've forgiven. This terrible thing that happened and was done, and I've forgiven. But I just can't forget it. And it's like they're under this condemnation because they're supposed to forget. How do you forget something like that? Let's talk about what forgiveness and forget, forgetting really means. Okay? Turn back with me to uh, Romans chapter 4. Let's look at what the Bible really says about it. Romans chapter 4, there's a word that's used in here that's translated different things. We'll start in verse 3. It says, but what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. This word counted, I don't know how to pronounce it in the Greek, but it literally means to reckon. Now, I'm not talking southern. It means to reckon. This is a Greek word that means to reckon. It's also used uh, 11 times, total of 11 times in this chapter, the fourth chapter, because Paul is trying to make a point throughout the whole chapter about God's attitude or God's action where reckoning is concerned. Now, the one I want you to see, or at least one of them I want you to see, is in verse 8. It said, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. This is the same word that's translated count in verse 3. It's the same word that means to reckon. To impute or to count. It's an accounting term. And it literally means this. It's a, when I say this in an accounting term, it's, uh, it's, any of you have ever had uh, things audited or had, maybe you had your taxes audited or you've been involved in a, a company situation that, uh, that has annual audits done or something like that? Well, if you haven't, it's kind of like a rectal exam. <laughs> it's just a real, real pleasant experience. But it's intended to be an, uh, uh, an objective, a third-party observation about the condition of either the individual's finances or company. An auditor comes in. We have an audit done, an annual audit done every year, and it stops everything in the office. And, and um, uh, you know, we're at their beck and call and have to do everything that they need us to do to provide the information that they need. And we keep our books in good order, so it's it's not an unpleasant experience for us, at least not as unpleasant as it could be. But in, in, what, really what happens is the auditors come in and they take our books. We provide uh, financial information and, and do things on a regular basis, weekly basis, monthly basis. You know, we draw up reports any way that, uh, that we want to do it with the software program that we use and so forth. But the auditors come in and they examine our books. And what they do is they examine what we say we have as an asset. They examine what we say we have as a liability. They examine what we claim as income and what we show as expenses. And what they do is they come in with a third-party, um, unbiased opinion. They're not supposed to be making judgments. They just come in and they examine everything that we have, and they say, this is what the books really are. 
they don't make a, a judgment on this is what they've said they were and they were wrong or this is what they should be saying. They just simply say this is the condition, this is the state of the company. Now, what they do is this Greek word reckon. They come in and make a reckoning of all the accounts. Now, the Bible says where God came in, God is the ultimate auditor. And God comes in and he sees what's on the asset side of our lives and the liability side of our lives. Now, folks, I've got to tell you, when God gets to us, not much on the asset side and a whole lot on the liability side. And that's what the Bible says that Jesus has done for us. He took our liabilities, the sins that we personally committed, the sins that were imputed to us or the sins that were counted to us because of Adam's original sin in the Garden of, of, uh, of Eden. And all those things are on the liability side of our ledger. Now, he not only takes an accounting of it, but his blood pays the debts. So whereas when he first finds us, we are debt-laden. His sin or his blood pays the debt for those sins, so he clears our ledger. Now, that's what this means where it says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. It literally means the, the children of God are blessed because there is no liability in their life. Now, that's what the Bible speaks of as far as God paying the price for sin and separating us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't just do some accounting maneuver to cover things up. He literally makes an accounting. This is an eternal accounting, whereas sin is no longer in your life. It's no longer a part of you. That's why the new birth is such a critical issue. Because you're not just kind of cleaned up. It's not just that God covers over the stuff that you've done. He makes you new. He separates you from sin. You literally are made righteous. He takes you from the death or the debt, the liability side of life that we are before Jesus, and he makes us a new creature in him. He literally makes you righteous. God doesn't just say you're righteous. You really are. And the eternal auditor has declared it so through the action of his son. So when it says that it was counted to Abraham as righteousness, it means as far as God was concerned, it's a real thing. When it says that the man that's blessed because sin is not imputed to him, it literally means there's no sin on your in your life. You go to God and talk to him about sin, he doesn't know what you're talking about. Because you have been cleared of sin. Now, that's what the Bible means when it says God remembers your sin no more. How could God forget? How is it possible for God to forget? Folks, it's not that God just says, okay, well, I know I could remember if I wanted to because I'm God, but I just choose not to remember. That's not what happens. He literally wipes sin away from your life so he has nothing to remember. It's a fact. It's just not one of these religious ideas. It's a fact that you have been freed from sin once and for all. Now, that's what the Bible speaks of. Let me show you another example of it over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul's real big on this. I think there's a reason why, and we'll talk about that as we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's start in verse 17. It's in verse 19 that I want you to see it. But let's start in verse 17. It says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, that means if he asks Jesus into his heart, if he's born again, he is a new creature. Another translation says he is a new species of being. 
Old things are passed away, and behold, all things become new. If somebody comes to the altar and gets saved, they may walk away from the altar looking the same way they looked when they came up, but they're a new species of being when they go back. Something's changed, and that something was the new man on the inside that has born that has caused them to be born again. The old man is gone. He died. He's replaced with the new man. One of the the most aggravating things that I hear people say is that, well, we're just sinners saved by grace. Speak for yourself, Buster. (laughs) I am not a sinner. I was, but I was saved by grace. So I am not a sinner any longer. Well, does that mean you never miss it, Pastor Mike? No. Sometimes we miss it. Sometimes everybody misses it. We all do. We all stumble and fall. But the fact is, my stumbling and falling doesn't change the reality that I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. Verse 18, and all things are of God. These are all new things he's talking about. And all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. This word reconciled, this word uh, reconciliation means exchange. God made an exchange. Jesus paid the price for your sin. Jesus became sin. You became righteous. There was an equal exchange. Verse 19, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, making that exchange, not imputing. Here's this word impute. Here's this word reckon. Not imputing or counting their trespasses unto them and is committed unto us, the word of reconciliation. You know what the word of reconciliation or the word of exchange is? You know what the good news of Jesus is? God's wiped away the sin of the world for anybody that will accept it. God's not against you. The price has been paid. As far as God is concerned, the liability side of your life has been wiped out. All you have to do is accept the payment that was made, which was the blood of Jesus. And in so doing, you take advantage of everything that Jesus paid for. So in that sense, and you can readily understand how God remembers our sin no more. Sin is done away with once and for all. So why is Paul remembering Alexander and Hymenaeus? Why is uh, why is Paul talking about the Lord rewarding him according to his works? That doesn't sound very Christian of him, does it? How's that possible? Turn with me back to Matthew chapter 5. Let's see what Jesus said about the subject. Matthew chapter 5. This was one of my least favorite passages of Scripture as a little kid. Let's start reading in verse 38. You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's the way it was in the Old Testament. Forgive you, God will forgive you as you've forgiven others. If somebody does you something, uh, done you wrong, you have a right to do the same thing to them or something of equal harm to them. You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That came from the law of Moses. That's where he's saying you heard this from. But I say unto you, verse 39, that you resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, 
Take away and take away thy coat. Let him have your cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain or two. Give to him that asks thee, and from him that would borrow thee, turn not away. I couldn't stand those scriptures as a kid. Wait a minute, that's so wrong. That's so unfair. As I got older, I realized, wait a minute. When these people wanted to stone Jesus, he didn't turn the other cheek. He walked through the middle of them. When they wanted to throw him off the brow of the cliff, he didn't stop and say, okay, have your way in love. No, he walked through the middle of them. He questioned them. Wait a minute. How is Jesus telling us to do stuff that he didn't seem to follow through on his own? own? How is that possible? Folks, look at the context that he says. Notice the next thing that he speaks of. This is the context. Verse 43, you have heard it has been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be children of your father. What's he saying? He's saying, here's how to handle your enemies. Here's how to handle your enemies. He's specifically saying, don't resist evil when it's being done to you. Why? Because he's trying to get us to operate in the very simple principle that, that, that underlies all of forgiveness, and that is vengeance is the Lord's. God will repay. You know what happens when you forgive? You know what happens when you yield to people doing you wrong rather than standing up and trying to fight through it and all that kind of stuff? Do you know what happens? You relinquish your right to be judge in their situation. You're saying, okay, I'll receive whatever God has for me in this. Let God take care of it. God will see me through the end. I heard uh, Lester Summer preach something when I was first year I was at Raymond, 1980. Lester Summer preached a message. I don't even remember if it was the, the subject of the message, but he said something during that that caught my attention. He made just a few statements about it that caught my attention and has stuck with me for 35 years. He said, a man of faith always takes what's left. He said, Abraham, when, uh, when the time came for Abraham and Lot, their, their flocks and herds had multiplied to such a degree that the land couldn't take them both, couldn't handle them both. He didn't say to Lot, all right, I'm the big dog here. I'll take what I want and you can have what's left. In other words, uh, but in fact, he said just the opposite. He said, Lot, you take whatever you want and I'll take what's left. Now, Lot didn't have the good sense to realize the whole reason he was blessed was because of Abraham. If Lot had had good sense, he would have said, listen, I will diminish and decrease my stuff to whatsoever degree I need to, whatever level I need to, so I can stick with you. I'm not leaving you. You're the reason that I'm blessed as it is. But he didn't. He looked out over the plain and he said, oh, I'll take the cities. Sodom and Gomorrah. Good choice. But a man of faith takes what's left. Abraham was left with the desert and the wilderness. And God still blessed him there. Jesus is saying, you don't have to worry about trying to hold yourself up and try to, ex- uh, you know, extend your rights and express your rights in the situation. God will take care of you. God's on your side. Don't worry about somebody taking advantage of you. God will see you through no matter what happens. We, uh, some of the problem that we had with the, the building program and, and uh, the, the, the lawsuits and all that kind of stuff, we lost a couple of million dollars on that thing. And I thought to myself at the time, this is the end of life. I mean, that's all the money in the world. There, there's just, there's no way for us to come through this. There's no way for us to, to, uh, to make it through this and survive. And you know what, folks? We're the only people in the whole group of everybody that's involved that did survive. 
Why? Because if God's on your side, he sees you through. You don't have to win the court case for God to make you, uh, cause you to come out on top. But see, I thought he did. I thought, oh man, my faith has to, has to be expressed and extended toward every one of these court situations. I've got to win. And when we started losing, it was like, dear God, what is going on now? Is my faith not working? Is this stuff I've been preaching not true? No, what's true is a man of faith will take what's left and God will make you come out on top anyway. You don't have to win every little thing. Everything doesn't have to go to your advantage and go your way for God to see you through. And that's what he's saying. He's saying don't resist evil. Don't try to fight against evil when things aren't going your way. When it looks like somebody's beating you down, that's okay. God will see you through. And here's how to handle your enemies. And it's your enemies that are going to be hitting you in the face. It's your enemies that are going to be taking your stuff. It's your enemies that are going to try to force you to do things you don't want to do. What do you do with those enemies? He says, love them, pray for them, bless them. That's the real sign of forgiveness. If you can pray for the people that have done you wrong, that's how you know you've really forgiven. If you can pray blessings upon the people that have done you wrong, that's how you know you've forgiven. But is there any place in here that Jesus said, forget it? Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Notice what Jesus said to his disciples. These are the twelve, and he commanded them to go into the cities before him. Notice in verse 16, he said, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake and for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. He said, But don't worry, I'll give you something to say when you're there. Now, why didn't Jesus say, now, when you go into the cities, turn the other cheek? Why didn't he say, now, remember, the law of love is you're to be a doormat every place you go. Why didn't he say that? No, he said, realize that you're going out into a world of evil people. That's why you're going to have to be harmless as doves. There's the love of God. Be harmless, but don't be stupid. Be wise. Know how they operate. Folks, if you steal money from me, I can forgive you for stealing, but it would be stupid for me to leave my money sitting around in front of you. Why? Here's the deal. If you come to me and you say, Pastor Mike, I took something from you and I was so wrong. I am so sorry. I want to make it right. That reconciliation can be made. That acknowledgement of the wrongdoing can bring something that can be a strength for our relationship, your relationship with God and our relationship together. Right? But if you steal something from me and never acknowledge it or act like it never happened or deny it or whatsoever, wouldn't I be a fool to put you in a position where you could do it again? But see, you've got so many Christians that are thinking this love that means forgive and forget so that they put themselves in the same situation over and over and over and over again. That's crazy. It's absolutely nuts. Look at Paul. Paul spoke of the Jews. Remember, the Jews were the ones that caused him all the problem in his ministry. They're the ones that are stirring up riots against him. Paul wrote to the, to the, uh, to the Romans that if it were possible, I'd give up my salvation for the Jews to be saved, for all of Israel to be saved, right? What's he saying? He's saying, I know that these people are doing this out of ignorance. I know that they don't really know what they're doing. They're doing the same thing that I did. Paul did it himself. He spoke in uh, Acts chapter 26 and they even told Timothy about it. 
He said, I did a lot of things that were contrary to the, to the law of, of God. I did a lot of things that were contrary to Jesus. I persecuted Christians. I, I caused them to blaspheme. I put so much pressure on them that I made them deny Jesus. Paul said he did that. He said, I put a lot of them in prison. He said, I beat some of them. I was responsible for the death of other Christians. But I did these things in ignorance. I thought I was doing things helping God out because I thought these Christians were contrary to or against the law of Moses, which was still in effect. I didn't know any better. Well, Paul understands that if somebody's doing something that they don't know any better about, they're worthy of forgiveness. That's why Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. That's why Stephen said as he was being stoned, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Why? Because he said they don't know what they're doing. They don't understand what they're doing. They're operating in ignorance. They think they're doing something good. They think they're pleasing you. So don't count this against them. But the people that do wrong and know they do wrong, like Alexander and Hymenaeus, Paul had a different attitude toward them, didn't he? Of course he did. Of course he did. There was, uh, I've got a friend that was, uh, well, how much of the story do I want to tell you? Um, he was, uh, he was visiting another church. He was there at the, uh, um, well, he had an appointment with the pastor of the church. And this, the pastor of this church preaches this, this, um, well, he preaches the grace message, but I mean, it's, it, that's all he preaches. He just preaches the grace of God and, and, uh, um, and, and, well, I don't know how to explain it any other way than that. But anyway, while this guy was there, he had an appointment with him and, and he was going to be there for a couple of days. And while he was there, he found out about a situation that had occurred sometime before. One of the assistant pastors in the church, uh, he, he and his family had a home somewhere in, in town and this home had been burglarized. And apparently they had ransacked the home, taken a lot of stuff. Well, while my friend, my pastor or minister friend was there in town to own his appointment, this thief was found. Somehow or another, the police found out about who he was and, and uh, he had the stuff and, and so forth. It created a huge problem in the church because a lot of the church is saying, well, the grace of God would just forgive this guy. The grace of God would just say, well, we forgive you, brother. But the assistant pastor, he wanted to press charges. He said, wait a minute, this guy took my stuff. This guy invaded my home. Thank God my family wasn't there, but what could have happened if my, if my wife and my kids had been there? I want to prosecute this guy. It created a huge problem in the church because you've got so many people now that have this idea that the love of God just looks the other way and never takes into account anything that takes place or any, any harm that's ever done. Folks, that's not the way God operates. Whose sins does God forget? the ones that make Jesus the Lord of their lives. But remember very specifically that at the end of the age, at what's called the great white throne judgment, God remembers everybody's sins who rejected Jesus. He forgives and forgets for those who accept Jesus as the Lord. Not for everybody. Well, I thought God never changes. He doesn't. And what does that tell us? It tells us the love of God is available to forgive and overlook or forget those who recognize and acknowledge their sin, acknowledge their wrongdoing. That's why the Bible says over and over again, if somebody's done you wrong, go to them privately. Work it out individually. Because if you can, if you can work it out individually, it can become something that's a strength. It can strengthen the relationship. And you can restore each other back to where you were before, before somebody's feelings got hurt or whatever the case was. But if they won't hear you, what happens? 
See, sin always has to be acknowledged. When you make Jesus the Lord of your life, you're acknowledging your need for a Savior. And the refusal to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior means you're saying, I don't need anybody to take it from me. I can do it myself. Now, does the world know that's what they're doing when they reject Jesus? For the most part, I don't think they do. But that's exactly what they're doing. They're saying, I don't need Jesus to pay or wipe out my debts, the debt of sin. I'll take care of it myself. So guess what happens? At the end of the age, they get to. And the result of that is they wind up spending eternity in hell. And that's where the church and, and, and well, a lot of the church and some of the world too says, well, I don't understand how a loving God could send somebody to hell. God doesn't send you to hell. God doesn't send anybody to hell. He honors your decision and your choice to go. Yeah, but that's not fair. Yeah, it is. Because it's based on your decision. So many times people say, well, the consequences, though, don't match up. That's why it's important to make good choices. Because a lot of times the consequences don't match in this sense of fairness that the world seems to be stuck with. The world seems to have the idea that everybody's supposed to have the same outcome. Folks, that's never the case. God didn't give us all equal gifts. He gave you better gifts than he gave me in some regards. He may have given you gifts that will make you more money in life than he gave me. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean God likes you better than me? Well, he better not. I'll change my preaching if that's the case. What does it mean? It means we have different gifts. We have different abilities. We have different calls in life. And the world will recognize things in a different way. You can't tell me that it's fair that Hollywood actors make more than than school teachers. How's that fair? You don't see anybody complaining about that, though, do you? No, it's all the evil bankers and it's all the, the people that are in business for themselves and all that kind of stuff. It's all the evil businessmen. Well, what about the Hollywood crowd? you telling me they earn their money? Seriously? No, this, it's the world's sense of fairness. It's the devil that runs this idea of fairness. The reality is there's a consequence for the choices we make. That's why it's important for us to make good choices. Amen? Okay, let's look at, uh, look with me over to, to um, 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4. Notice in verse 18. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear has torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. I think we've talked about this before. We may have mentioned it at least. This word torment means punishment. And notice what he said. Perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Fear has to do with punishment. Now, when we forgive, we're choosing to relinquish our right to punish somebody. We choose to relinquish our right to punish the other person, the person that's done us wrong. But how far does that forgiveness go? Can we forget the things that others have done wrong, done us wrong? Well, again, as we said, if somebody, if we go to them or they come to us and reconciliation is made and we apologize to each other, I'm so sorry, didn't mean to do that to you. I, I realized later how that came across and I'm so sorry. Then it's easy to forget that. It's easy to forget that. But if somebody takes a position that it doesn't matter what I've done to you, then you can write it down. They're going to do it again. 
Well, then should we open ourselves up for that to happen again and again and again? Well, it's going to happen again and again, but we should protect ourselves to some degree. Don't you think? Isn't that being wise as serpents, even though we're harmless as doves? Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I think I mentioned to you earlier we'd get over there. Let's look at that now. How do we deal with things like that? How are we supposed to go? How far are we supposed to go? The last thing I want to happen is for somebody to leave the church this morning and say, well, thank God Pastor Mike preached on that this morning because I haven't wanted to forget this wrong that was done to me all, all this time. Now I've got an excuse. He said so. That's not what I'm after. Notice what the Bible says. Let's start in verse uh, 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, or, um, chapter 13, beginning in verse 4. It says, charity or love suffers long and is kind. Charity or love envies not. Charity vaunts not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Charity or love never fails. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there shall be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there will be knowledge, it shall pass away. Now, I like the Amplified about this on these verses of Scripture. Let me read this real quickly, but I do want to come back to the King James. Let me read this from the Amplified. Verse 4, love endures long and is patient and kind. A lot of people endure long because they have to, but they're not patient and kind in the process. But love is patient and kind and endures long. Love never is envious nor boils over with jealousy. It is not boastful or vainglorious. It does not display itself haughtily. Verse 5, it is not conceited, arrogant, or inflated with pride. It is not rude or unmannerly and does not act unbecomingly. Love, that is God's love in us, does not insist on its own rights or its own way, for it is not self-seeking. It is not touchy or fretful or resentful. It takes no account of the evil done to it. It pays no attention to a suffered wrong. Now, folks, that phrase right there is the thermometer for love. You want to know how successful you are in walking in love? This is it. Let me read it to you again. Love takes no account of the evil done to it. It pays no attention to a suffered wrong. That means the love of God is always operating from the basic assumption that nobody is meaning to do me wrong. It doesn't mean that the love of God bears its head in the sand and recognize, and fails to recognize when somebody really is trying to do them wrong on purpose. Some people will operate in an unscrupulous manner as far as business is concerned because they don't believe the Christian will take them to court to exercise their rights. Should we be stupid and, and foolish about that? Should we be ignorant of that fact? I'm not going to be. I'm ready to go to court anytime I need to. I'm going to pray about it, find out what God tells me to do. But you think you can steal something from me or my family and I'm automatically not going to go to court because of some scripture that somebody misinterprets. Forget it. Thank you for your enthusiastic response. Verse 6, love does not rejoice in injustice and unrighteousness, but rejoices when right and truth prevails. Love bears up under anything and everything that comes, is ever ready to believe the best of every person, its hopes are faithless under all circumstances, and it endures everything without weakening. Love never fails, never fades out, or becomes obsolete or comes to an end. It says love endures everything, but it doesn't say that love puts up with everything that comes along down the road.
You've got family situations, marital situations, where a husband or wife will be unfaithful to the other, and the other has this perverted idea of what the love of God's supposed to do. Well, the love of God's just supposed to forgive. Well, isn't love, doesn't love involve people proving themselves faithful again, though, too? I mean, let's look at the story of Joseph. We see that the Old Testament story of Joseph is a type of Jesus' forgiveness of us. Joseph proved his brothers before he forgave them. When his brothers came to him, Joseph was made prime minister of Egypt. When his brothers came to him and didn't know who he was, he proved them three different times to see what their attitude was. Are these the same guys that sold me into slavery or have they changed? And once he saw that they had changed, once they had had remorse over the fact that they had sold Joseph into slavery, once they had remorse over what was going to happen with their youngest brother, Benjamin, and how that would affect their father, Joseph saw that their hearts were different. And then he said, don't be mad at yourselves about this. God had a hand in it to bring me uh, into a place where I could deliver you and my family. But he proved them first. Did he forget it? No. Not till after he proved them. Then, some 17 years later, after he was reconciled with his family, when the father dies, the brothers are still unsure. The brothers are still afraid. They come to Joseph and say, here's what daddy said. He said he wanted you to make sure that we got back home safe. Well, Joseph knows that wasn't the case. Joseph knows that if, if his father had wanted that, his father would have told him. He knew they were just being afraid of him. So he said, you don't have to be afraid of me. I've already forgiven you. Now forgive yourselves. But he proved them first. Notice in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it says, uh, the last phrase, it says, Love thinketh no evil. Thinketh no evil. You know what this word thinketh is? This word thinketh is the same word reckon. Over in Romans chapter 4, 11 times in Romans chapter 4, and over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19. It reckons no evil. In other words, it doesn't hold an account of the things done wrong to it. Now, how do we stop that? How do we let things go? And let's talk about the other side. Just like how uh, Joseph's brothers had trouble forgiving themselves. You know, I found that sometimes forgiving myself is harder than forgiving the other guy. Because I look at myself and say, I knew better. I know the word. I knew better. And still, I chose to do the wrong thing. How can God forgive me? I've seen this even in situations of healing. I've seen situations where people wouldn't forgive themselves and therefore they didn't feel like they were worthy of receiving God's healing power. But as soon as they came to the place where they let their own sins go in their own minds, in their own thinking, in other words, when they kept from keeping an account of what they had done wrong, then the healing power of God came. See, folks, if unforgiveness is the number one hindrance to faith working, that does not just mean unforgiveness toward the other guy. That can mean unforgiveness in your own life toward yourself. It's a whole lot easier for me to forgive the other guy than it is for me to forgive me. Because the devil hammers me with the word that I knew all the time. What about that? How do we handle that? You know what the best way to to keep from it? Turn with me over to James chapter 2, I think it is. You know the best way to keep from that? Let me show you to you.
is James chapter 3. James chapter 3. Notice beginning in verse 5. Uh, back up to verse 2. For in many things we offend all. Now we're talking about avoiding offenses. We usually think of avoiding offenses and, and offenses in the sense that other people do us wrong. But it could be anything. It could be us wronging God. That's an offense too, isn't it? For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet they are turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor or the, the captain listeth, wherever he turns it, in other words. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Please notice this phrase. It's a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. Another translation says, sets the course of your whole life on fire. You know one of the greatest ways to overcome and forgive and forget the things that you need to forget? Quit having these imaginary conversations where you vindicate yourself in front of the other person. You didn't know the rest of us did that, did you? We all do that. We have these conversations. Sometimes if we're alone, we'll have them out loud. Other times we'll just have them in our own minds. And what we're doing is we're always giving somebody what for. Have you ever noticed how so many people think that if they can just get something off their chest, it'll make it better, but it never does? Instead of getting it off their chest, it intensifies it. Because once your tongue gets involved, then it increases and sets things on fire. It can make something go from your head to becoming a part of your spirit. Listen, folks, your tongue is not important just to receive the things of God and the operation of faith. Your tongue is important because everything you say is a spiritual law that will come to pass. So if you speak, if you start having these imaginary conversations where you tell your boss what for, or you let your wife or your husband know how things really are, or if you tell your next-door neighbor or whoever it was that did you wrong, you really set them straight. What you're doing is you're setting a fire within your own spirit. Now, some people think this is therapeutic. Some people think it's therapeutic to have these conversations. Well, we'd never say that to them. We're just saying it to ourselves. But what it does is it starts to cause a root of bitterness on the inside. The fact is simply this. You cannot forget something that you keep talking about. You can't do it. Even if you're just talking about it to yourself. You can't forget it if you keep talking it. I can't tell you how many people I have straightened out. It never helps. Never does anything except creates a problem for me. Then I have to go back and now I've got a bigger problem to forgive than I did before I had my say. And have you ever noticed how the devil will make you imagine things about other people, things that haven't even happened, and then you'll go through your minds about what you would do and how you would handle it if it ever happened, and it never does happen. So what does it do? It just stirs up passions on the inside of you that makes you look at those people with a with a suspicious look. It's the way the devil tries to stir up trouble. It's exactly the way the devil operates. Second... Uh, uh, 
First Corinthians chapter two, verse no, second Corinthians chapter two, verse 11. Paul talked about not being ignorant of Satan's devices. The context that he's talking about is receive the guy that we turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh in the first letter. Receive him because he's repented. Don't keep holding something against him because that unforgiveness is the way that the devil works and we don't want to be ignorant of Satan's devices. So you need to realize the devil's trying to control your tongue in anything and everything he can. Not only does he want you to speak contrary to the word about healing or forgiveness or or whatever is available to you, whatever blessing of God is available to you, he wants to get you speaking contrary to any characteristic that would bring you into blessing. Stop having these conversations with yourself. Because even if they're just imaginary conversations, you're imagining that your tongue is speaking and it has, if it doesn't have at least the same effect, it has some effect on you. I think it's worse when you speak it than if you just think it. But it still has the same, same principle in operation. We've got to have, stop having these conversations with ourselves. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to take care of something when it's small? If you just go to somebody, husbands and wives have this situation a lot. A lot of times what husbands and wives are arguing about could have been solved very simply in the beginning. But over time it builds and builds and builds and now they've got so many things spoken against each other and so many things imagined against each other and so forth that by the time they go to marriage counseling, man, it's a it's a giant pile that's almost impossible to unravel. Why don't we take care of things when they're small? I think a lot of times we don't do it because we say, well, we don't want to cause trouble. We don't want to create a conflict. So what do we do? We have these imaginary conversations in our mind where we have conflict. And we always win. Have you ever lost one of those conversations in your mind? You always win. And boy, you slam them too. I mean, not only do you win, you let them know you won. And what does it do? It just stirs you up in the wrong way. I'm going to have a hard time getting out of this one. There are so many places I could go with this. Do you see the point, folks? Love thinketh no evil. The love of God thinketh no evil. The love of God doesn't hold something in somebody's account. That's not stupid. It doesn't bury its head in the sand and say this never happened. But it seeks reconciliation. And if that reconciliation is possible, if that reconciliation is agreed to by both parties, it can become a strength rather than a weakness. It can become a a landmark in a relationship to where now we're better than we were before rather than something that, that you look back at year after year after year as being a turning point for evil. I feel so sorry for people that force or at least try to. I don't know that you can really do it for own, uh, for somebody else. But I feel so bad for people that try to force other people to live up to their standard or their idea of love when it's contrary to what the Bible says. I've seen parents do this with their kids. I've seen, um, I've seen family situations where there was a molestation issue where one parent is pushing the child. Now you need to forgive them. You need to forgive that family member. But the other family member, the one that did wrong, 
hasn't really repented, hasn't really asked for forgiveness, hasn't really tried to make things right and owned up to what they did. And as a result, it's something that just gets pushed off. Have you ever heard people take the position that, well, look, I I messed up, but what else can I say? Said I was sorry, let's move on. Well, that's a real comfort, isn't it? That's a real comfort. How can you trust somebody that 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 uh, minimizes the thing that they did that hurt the person, the first person? How can you how can you forget that? How can you overlook that? You can't. Sin always has to be acknowledged, folks. It always has to be acknowledged. That's what's so damaging and and uh, and troublesome to me about the teaching in the body of Christ that First John one nine doesn't belong to the church. Of course it belongs to the church because sin has to be acknowledged. If we confess our sin, if we miss it and confess our sin, if we acknowledge our sin, it doesn't mean you have to wallow in it. But if we confess or acknowledge our sin, then God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that unrighteous action. Our nature hadn't changed. Our nature didn't change when we committed the sin, but he cleanses us from that unrighteous action when we acknowledge it. It's the only way that we can maintain fellowship. Sin has to be acknowledged to maintain fellowship. You ever been able to maintain fellowship with anybody that that will deny that they ever did anything wrong to you? It's impossible because you don't trust them. You may feel guilty and think that you're supposed to, but you can't trust them. Well, you're not even supposed to. You're supposed to be smart enough to see things for the way they are. I love the example the Holy Ghost gave us about Paul. He didn't forget everything that was done wrong to him, but he made the distinction. He was able to to, to make the distinction between those who didn't know better and therefore were worthy of God's mercy and those who did what they did with their eyes wide open because they were resisting God and not just coming against him. Well, if Paul did that, and he said before the Jewish council, I have lived my life in all good conscience before God until this day. That's Acts 23.1. If Paul was able to live in good conscience with that manner or that example of life, shouldn't that give us a good conscience too? Absolutely. Thank God he's forgiven us and thank God he's forgotten our sins. And as long as we maintain that right attitude, Yeah, okay, Lord, we may miss it. We may stumble and fall here and there. But whenever we do, you know it was a mistake of the flesh and not of our heart. And therefore, we'll acknowledge it quickly and ask forgiveness and repent immediately. As long as we do that, we can stay in fellowship with God all the days of our lives. It works that way with relationships between people, too. Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that you consider us and hold us debt-free. Thank you that we have been audited for all of eternity. And we have no debt. We have no sin. We have no liabilities because of the blessed blood of Jesus that was shed for us. And, Father, when we do stumble and fall, we're quick to repent because nothing's more important to us than staying in fellowship with you. And, Father, help us to walk in that love toward other people, too. But, Father, help us, I pray today, more for these people, each and every one of us, that we would forgive ourselves 
that we would recognize that the things that we've done wrong aren't being held against us by you. And that we would let those things go. Because those are the things that can keep us from receiving the fullness of your blessing. Help us to recognize, Father, that when we hold wrongdoing, our own wrongdoings against ourselves, we're saying the blood of Jesus isn't enough. But oh, thank you, Father, that it is. Our punishing ourselves is neither greater than the blood of Jesus nor is necessary because Jesus' blood paid the price. If it were possible, Father, I pray right now that the Holy Ghost would settle upon each and every person in this room to cause them to know that they have been forgiven, the eternal audit has been made, and that we can and should release ourselves from the guilt of our own wrongdoing. In Jesus' precious name. Father, I pray that we would know your love, experience it, recognize that it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance, that you're not after us, you're not trying to, to harm us, you're not even wanting us to pay the price for our own wrong choices. You just want to show your goodness. Let it be so for each and every one of us, Father. In Jesus' precious name. If you can agree with that, say amen. Amen.